So it may be surprising to us because we've got hundreds of paintings and we've heard this story of Jesus with all the stories being thrown into the blender. But do you realize that it is only in the Gospel of John that we have an account of the resurrection where Jesus has marks in his body? And, and they're called marks. And we know the story of Jesus and Thomas, where Jesus invites Thomas to put his hands in the marks on his body. Now, we might think that this is just a historical recitation, but in the context of the Gospel of John that we are growing to understand is a text about the third spiritual path. This is quite important and quite true. Because that third path moment, that revelatory, epiphanic, new awareness, fresh sense of direction and vision, I know that that moment is coming out of some deep place of the spirit rather than my ego when what arrives has the marks of my past wounding. That if it is too perfect, it is not of, a, it is not of the spirit yet. It's more out of my ego mind. That we, at, at the third path and the transformation that begins to happen in us at the third path is a reweaving of our wounds into marks. They are no longer those parts of our struggle that hold us back. Rather, they become the parts of our struggle that are now guideposts to our future. So Jesus the Christ appearing to Thomas, the text reads, of his wounds now become marks. And we too can expect that in our own lives, that in a true third path experience, we can look back at the journey that we've made to this point and understand that the wounding was leading us to, to see our life in a new way. But those wounds no longer hold us captive. At the same time, they become the guideposts to our future. Good morning, friends, and welcome to Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Would you please hear these words as I read to you from the book that tells the story of liberation? These words are from the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses this name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today, we come to the end of our sermon series on the Exodus. But we're ending in a somewhat strange place in the story. The Exodus narrative, in some sense, has just begun. The people were more and more oppressed. They cried out. God heard their cry and moved decisively to free them from Egypt, enlisting Moses as a partner. And just 50 days later, the people find themselves here at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they receive these Ten Commandments. What we know as astute Bible readers is that the people will continue to wander the desert wilderness for another 40 years after this event. Just as a matter of story structure, there are yet another 20 chapters of the book of Exodus, and then there's Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomies combining for another 97 chapters in the Torah after this story. So why should we end our sermon series here? Now, I didn't write the sermon series, but I happen to think the person that did is rather brilliant. That would be Pastor Dinah. By ending the series here, we reflect the story as a whole. We're left asking some of the same questions that may have been asked by those on the precipice of crossing into the promised land after more than 400 years of slavery and 40 years of wandering. The story of a, as a whole... The narrative in the Torah ends in a strange place itself. The five books of the Torah tells the story of a God that frees people from their slavery and leads them every step of the way towards the promised land, but it is not a story of the people going into the promise. The Torah ends with people gazing across a river and into the promise. The Torah itself ends before the story is over. This is a story of a journey, of a movement, and not just the story of a destination. The promised land is certainly always looming in the future for the people, but this itself is a story of how to get to that promise and what prepares the people to enter into that promise. The questions that we're left with at the end of the Torah are surprising if we expected this story to be wrapped up tidily with a happily ever after. What comes next? How do the people move forward? What will life and the promise actually look like? How do we truly live into the freedom that we've been granted? The Ten Commandments are one of the answers to these questions. The kingdom of heaven has been defined in many ways throughout the history of our faith, and I like a lot of the ways that it's been talked about. One of those ways that I have found consistently helpful 
comes from the ancient sages. They use the structure of this Exodus story to describe what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It looks uh, for them like three parts of this story. They said that the first part of the kingdom of heaven is that God comes in power. He comes in power to free people from oppression. This is seen in the plagues that were sent on Egypt and in the splitting of the sea. The second piece of that kingdom is that the people then acclaim the God that set them free. They praise and they celebrate. We see this on the banks of the Sea of Reeds. The sea is crashed back onto the army of the empire and Miriam had the foresight to bring a tambourine. She pulls out and the people celebrate what they've been given. So first was God comes in power. Second is that the people acclaim that God. And the final piece of the kingdom, according to these sages, is that the people of God then listen to what that God has to say. They shema. They hear and they respond. By the time that the people reach Mount Sinai, the easy part of the story is over. It may seem like overcoming a global military superpower would be the hard part of this story, but in fact it's not. It took just 14 chapters for the people to come out of Egypt. But immediately these people start complaining. They start grumbling. They start worrying. They even come to a point that they long for their old slavery. Moving forward becomes too terrifying, and looking back at the oppression with nostalgia, they say, why can't we just go back to our captivity? It felt so free. The people have made it out of Egypt, but Egypt still lives strong within them. What we will find is that nothing of Egypt belongs in the promised land. Even Moses, when he uses the means of Pharaoh in striking the rock, does not get allowed into the promised land. In order to move forward, the people must have Egypt within them eradicated. The way of the empire is not the way of God, and it is not the way into the promise. As the prophet Zechariah puts it, it is not by might and not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. This is the hard part of the journey, learning to live in the actual freedom of that new reality. In our video this morning, Alexander John Shia talked about moving into the third path. For Dr. Shia and his pattern of discipleship, this third path is moving into the promise of finding a new revelation from God. And in the video, he discusses that the wounds received in the old way of life can become marks or guideposts as one moves towards the promise. In this narrative, there are more pages dedicated to the movement of the people towards the promise than there are dedicated to the event of liberation itself. And it's not even close. These pages are dedicated to the people learning to listen, beginning here at Sinai. It's here that the people begin to receive the grace that frees them from the Egypt that remains with them. It's here that they begin the long process of sanctification. These ten commandments, these are the initial marks and guideposts that lead the people into freedom. 
Each of these declarations address specific circumstances of the life that they've left behind in Egypt. We today have made the commandments something that they were never intended to be. We've made them a mere list of rules set in stone. This is exactly what Paul's criticism of the Torah or what the Torah had become to the people, become to the people of his day. It's exactly what Paul criticized. The Torah is, though, as we have said here, just a collection, not just a collection of commandments. It is a story. And the commandments within are made to serve that story, to serve that narrative. This is a story of a God that desires freedom and flourishing for his people. And this God will dismantle an empire to give those people that freedom and then move from that external oppression to that which they carry within them and free the people from all of it. Our text this morning doesn't even use the word commandments to describe these imperatives. Instead, it uses the word words. Listen again to these words. We'll put them into context of the slavery. And listen carefully to where they begin. And you'll see that these marks, these scars become marks. These are the words that the Lord spoke to the people of Israel. I am the one who set you free. I am the one who delivered you. I am the one that brought you out. Hear this. In Egypt, you were surrounded by gods and images and statues, and you had a God watching over your shoulder at every moment. But now, you are free. I'm a God that participates in your story. I'm the one God who cannot be reduced to some image or some carved figurine. In Egypt, you had no name, no authority, no identity. But now you are free. Now you carry the name of the God who has set you free. You bear this authority and you bear this identity. Bear this name with the gravity it's due. This name is not just some petty curse. Nor shall you use this name to perpetuate injustice or to build for yourself a new empire. This name is hallowed. It's the name of the one that gathers you to himself. In Egypt, you toiled for days on end. There was no rest. There was only work for something that you could not even reap for yourself. But now you are free. You shall take one day in seven and rest, just as the one who set you free did at the creation of all things. Further, you shall give to your household, to your neighbor, to the alien residing among you rest, Give rest to the very land that produces for you. Not only is six days work enough, but you will have enough and you are enough. In Egypt, you were only valued for that which you could produce. You were worked to the bone and thrown into the trash heap when you could no longer do so. But now you're free. You shall care for your elders, for your mother, for your father, for those that are no longer productive. Their value is not based in the material value that they produce. They are of sacred value simply because they are mine. They gave you life. Give them life in return. In Egypt, you were subject to violence and you were yourselves given to violence. You knew the murder of your own children and you murdered in return. But now you're free. 
Violence need not be answered with violence anymore. Murder will not set you or your people free. In Egypt, you were reduced to a commodity. You were used and taken and given and sold. Your very body was not your own and you were taken as an object of lust. But now you're free. You can no longer be commodified. You shall not commodify another. All of your relationships are to be based on a foundation of love, and love does not objectify. In Egypt, you worked fields that you did not own, reaped food that you could not eat, made clothing that you could not wear, and built structures in which you could take no shelter. You were forced to steal for your very life, but now you are free. Now you need not steal, for you have a system of generosity and care built around you. You shall not cut the corners of your field. You shall feed the alien and the poor. You shall give clothing to the naked. You shall shelter the homeless. In Egypt, your words mattered little. You could not speak for yourself, and you were subject to whatever was said about you. You were held accountable for the lies of others, but now you're free. Words create worlds, and you shall use your worlds to build up and to give life, just as the word of the Lord was spoken in the beginning. Speak truth. In Egypt, you had nothing. You were nothing. You naturally longed for that which was not granted to you. You saw and you desired the wealth and the power of your oppressors. But now you're free. You are mine and I am yours. What can you need that I cannot provide? Do not tear yourself to pieces in longing for that which belongs to your neighbor, but in everything be content. Covetousness will rot you from the inside. These commandments, these words, these declarations begin not with an imperative, but with a statement of relationship. They begin with God saying, I am the God that sets you free. I'm the one that lifts the yoke of oppression. I'm the one that redeems you with outstretched arms. I'm the one who comes into the story and rescues you. All of the imperatives that follow are subject to this relationship. They're given by the one that desires freedom, not by one that wants to place another yoke. This is not some list of commandments that are given to obey without question, no list of laws to impose on the people around you. There's not even a consequence named in this list if they're not kept. These are words of freedom given to those that have already been delivered. We listen to these words because the God that sets us free speaks them. And in the listening, we continue to be set free. Years later, Jesus would sit down to his final meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And on that night, as with most of the feasts, they would retell this very story of redemption. 
as we come to this table today, joined by our brothers and sisters in faith all around the world, as we join together in communion and in thanksgiving, we celebrate this story. Let us remember that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. Jesus took bread and giving thanks to God, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take this and eat. This is my body given for you. And when you do, remember me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to God again and handed it to his disciples and said, take this and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins for many. Whenever you drink this, remember me. The Christ, in taking on flesh, in living and dying and rising from the dead, has set us free. Our God has lifted the yoke of oppression, the yoke of sin and death from our shoulders. God has come in power. And so we eat this meal celebrating and praising our deliverance. And on that night, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, a new word I speak. Love one another. And so we listen. God, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus the Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at your table forever. Through Christ and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. This table is open, and those of you here in the room with your elements may partake. As you open your package, know that this is the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you. Thanks be to God. And for those of you viewing at home, of course, you can come between services or after the sanctuary service ends at noon to receive communion outside. Amen.